Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, we're talking about feeding performance horses. This live event and podcast is brought to you by Pro Elite. We're joined tonight by Dr. Claire Tunis, an independent equine nutrition consultant and owner of Clarity Equine Nutrition, which was previously Summit Equine Nutrition. And we're also joined by Dr. Marty Adams, a technical services equine nutritionist with Cargill Nutrition. Welcome to both of you. Hi. Thank you so much. Yep. We're going to start with you, Dr. Tunis. Can you tell us about your background and what it means to be an independent equine nutritionist? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is I've been working as an equine nutrition consultant uh, for the last probably about 13 years now, and um, I'm not I'm not on salary with any feed or supplement companies. I do consulting work for some of them, but um, I'm not you know I don't get a salary from them, and so I'm really free to recommend products that I see are fit for the individual horse based on its you know its needs, the owner's availability of products, their needs, and the like. Um, and um, I've worked with performance horses, you know, in this capacity for a long time, everything for, you know, all different disciplines. Um, I've helped horses, you know, event horses going overseas to compete in the UK at Burley and badminton and the like. I've had dressage horses that have, you know, competed at the Olympics, top show jumpers, um, horses competing and, you know, cutting and reining, you name it. I've, I've worked with performance horses across a range of disciplines. Um, and uh, yeah, they're a very interesting group to work with. And Dr. Adams, can you tell us about your interest in equine nutrition? Sure. So I'm a Missouri boy, so I, I graduated with a couple of degrees at Missouri State and then went on to University of Missouri Columbia's master's and PhD. And then I was a professor at Louisiana Tech University, then went on to Seminole Feed in Ocala, and then took the job with Southern States in Richmond, Virginia, till about three and a half years ago, and Cargill purchased the feed division of Southern States, and so I then am now an equine nutritionist for them. So been an equine nutritionist in the industry for well over 20 years and worked with a wide variety of horses, like Claire was saying too, from the backyard horse, barrel horse, or older horse to race horses, eventing horses, um, a lot of endurance horses and so on. So wide variety, it's very enjoyable. So now I'm I'm involved in research, I'm involved in developing new feeds, I'm involved in uh, training uh, training and education for our feed reps, for our dealers, for veterinary continuing education courses. So I get to do a lot of a lot of stuff I enjoy and learn all the time. Well, I want to give our audience a quick review of our Ask the Horse Live format. We're going to be starting with the questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have a question you'd like to ask live or would like a clarification on one of the responses that the doctors give, you can go ahead and enter that in the chat window in front of us if you've joined us on your computer. We're going to get you the, our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. If you're listening to our archive or our podcast and are interested in joining us live during our events, you can register to receive our announcements at thehorse.com or visit thehorse.com slash askthehorselive. So with that, we're gonna go ahead and jump into the questions. And I think the first question, Dr. Tunes, is really an important baseline for us. And that is, how do equine nutritionists define a quote, performance horse? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that a lot of people look at it and think, oh, well, that's a horse that's competing in a certain discipline. But um, I look at it a little differently, and I think other nutritionists might as well. And it's, it's not so much about competing in a certain discipline and more about energy expenditure that that horse is being asked to put out, you know, during a week. So performance horses are you know, have greater energy expenditures than those that are not doing very much work or doesn't maintenance or in light work. They're working multiple days a week, I'd say at least three. Um, and so they're, and they have larger energy demands than non-performance horses. And I think it's, you know, I think you can have performance horses that aren't competing. A lot of people out there that have horses that, you know, train in discipline, maybe they train in dressage and their horses are working at high levels in dressage, they don't have any particular interest in competing, 
but that horse is working as a you know competing horse would um, and that's a performance horse even though it's not competing and performance horses need to be managed as athletes um, and they need to be managed you know to pro prolong their and promote and long and sort of increase their longevity and so I think it's really important that these horses that are working this hard you know it's all about their overall management as an athlete um, and that they're treated like athletes. And Dr. Adams do you have anything to add? Oh, I'd, I'd agree with Claire. When we look at requirements for horses as far as digestible energy, we have a maintenance need, and then it goes up, and we actually have four activity levels. So those horses that would be considered performance horses are going to be at the higher end of that level, at that at heavy and very heavy level, but you could certainly have some moderate needs, moderate horse levels too. But I'd agree with Claire, multiple days a week, that they're working and and most of the riders that I work with they want to increase the performance in that horse right so they want to they want to go on to the next level and so I spend a lot of time working with them enabling them to get to that next level and Dr. Adams our next question is for you and it's from Jan in Tennessee and she wants to know what's the best way to feed a halter horse for superior muscle development does do muscle building supplements really work okay so the main the main way we do that besides meeting the digestible energy needs of the horse, obviously we want to feed enough hay and enough enough grain or concentrate as we'd call it to provide those energy needs. So as far as building the top line of the horse, we've done research on that and we have a proprietary amino acid balance or ratio and amounts that we utilize in our feeds. And so we'll use Seeds that have that formulation, and then we'll have use diet balancers or ration balancers as they're called, and we'll also have top line supplements in the progressive and and our pro elite lines. So, if you take away the moisture and the fat content of our bodies or horses' bodies, we're about 80% protein. So obviously, amino acids or protein is the major concern there, and exercising the horse. It takes the exercise and the nutrition together to build more muscle in the horse. I think that's an interesting piece that people who aren't involved with halter horses may not be aware of is the exercise piece. I boarded for a while, a long time ago, at a barn that had halter horses and, and those horses mm -hmm. were in daily conditioning programs. Um, mm -hmm. Lots of times they're put behind like an ATV and exercise on a track. Um, is, yeah. that, is that your experience with, with the higher end halter horses? Yes, the higher end halters, equisizers, and those kinds of things too. But yes, regular exercise and then feeding them appropriately because their amino acid needs are going to be increased. And to build more muscle, you have <coughs> excuse me, you have to supply the fuel, and the fuel is the amino acid. Tunis, our next question is for you, and it's from Sylvia in California. She says she has a five-year-old young horse on. Forage. Uh, what can she do to bulk up muscle and top line? He's in training five days a week, and she doesn't say what discipline. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. I think it builds on nicely to the one that um, Dr. Adams just on said, and I think you know to his point at the end, you know, unfortunately we can't build muscle sitting on the couch. Wouldn't it be nice, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. We've got to actually yeah. do the um, work. You know, I think a lot of people look at their diet and want, you know, a fix nutritionally. And yes, we can provide those building blocks that Dr. Adams is talking about, those amino acids and that quality protein, uh, which I'd probably be looking to add to this diet if she's really just feeding a forage diet right now, uh, which is great, right? Because forage should always be the foundation of our diet. And if he's able to maintain himself, uh, you know, just on a forage-based diet and his overall condition is good, then I'd be looking to add those pieces that maybe are not in that forage. So that quality protein, um, those essential amino acids for sure, as well as any missing minerals and vitamins, that's also really important because those play important roles in our metabolic pathways. And if we're deficient in minerals and some key vitamins, you know, our metabolism isn't going to work as well. So all that fuel that you're putting in there, all that amino acid and protein you're putting in there, you know, things aren't going to function as well as they could. So it's really important that the whole diet is properly balanced. So I'd probably be looking to add a high-protein ration balancer to this horse's diet if he's really just on forage. And if after a month or so, you know, you're still not seeing that muscle development that you were hoping for, then I might be looking for a more 
specialized protein supplement to add as well. So something that has some whey protein because our whey protein provides branched chain amino acids. And it's the branched chain amino acids that are really the building blocks of our muscle tissue, especially leucine is really important. So, um, and ideally you'd want to feed that fairly shortly after work is concluded because that's when the body's looking to repair the muscle tissue that was damaged by doing exercise. We bulk muscle up by actually damaging it through work, but tiny little micro tears in it, and then the body heals that and it bulks the muscle tissue up. Um, and so it's looking for those branched amino acids while it's doing that. So making sure those are there is really important. So um, amino acids are very popular when we post content on thehorse.com. Uh, people really like the content about amino acids. And we hear that a lot in the marketing of different feeds and supplements. Can you explain for our audience what an amino acid is? Yeah, absolutely. So I think of amino acids, so if you have proteins, right, probably protein, proteins are made up of amino acids. And, and amino acids are like links in a chain. So we have a great big long chain, that's our protein. Our amino acids are individual links. And when we look at those links, the links are like letters in the alphabet. So we have vowels and consonants. And we have what are called essential amino acids. Those are our vowels. They have to be in the diet. We have to give those to the horse nutritionally because the horse cannot make them himself. Then we have our non-essential amino acids. These are amino acids the horse can actually make himself. And those are like the consonants in our alphabet. And so when we're building protein, you need, you need both, but there are limiting amounts of, of some of these essential amino acids can become limiting. So say you're trying to build uh, words and you've only got two, say, E's uh, in your vowel selection. Once you've used all of your E's up, the next time you need an E to build a word, you don't have one. You can't build that word. The fact you have lots of L's and R's and Q's and P's is sort of irrelevant because you need an E. And this is what happens during something called protein transcription when we're trying to actually build proteins. If you don't have enough of the essential amino acids, you don't have enough of those vowels to finish building that word, you can't finish building that word. And so your protein, you know, formulating that protein then is, is somewhat diminished. And so that's why having enough of these essential amino acids is so important. And you'll often see on you know, a lot of the national retailers feed bags these days, they're actually guaranteeing levels of lysine, methionine, and threonine because these are the commonly sort of what we call limiting amino, essential amino acids in the equine diet. And they're telling us that they're putting in additional amounts of those in there because they're important to enable your horse to build protein. And remember that protein is not just muscle. Right? Proteins are your hoof, your hair, your skin, um, you know, immune, immune system hormones, you know, so many things, proteins in our body. Protein is really important. So having these essential amino acids is important for your horse's overall health beyond just building muscle. Um, and so that's why they're so, that's why they're important. I would just add that there's, there's a temptation to kind of add individual amino acids. And um, it's really important that your horse is getting the full spectrum of amino acids, that they're getting this, you know, all the different amino acids so that they have everything they need to build protein. And it can get uh, people to start to reach for amino acid supplements that only have one or two amino acids in, and that makes me a little nervous. I prefer to use kind of broad spectrum quality protein that provides all of the essential amino acids so that the horses have everything they need in a good balance. And so uh, one, that sounds like a very complicated game of Scrabble to me. And two, <laughs> <laughs> the other the other uh, buzzword that we get from our uh, users and readers are is uh, antioxidants. So let's circle back to antioxidants. If I don't ask you about it, remind me because I do think we need to touch on anti antioxidants, and mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that we have anything planned for that. Um, our next question is for Dr. Adams. Barbara in North Carolina wants to know what role does fat play in feeding horses? What is the appropriate percentage of fat in a diet for a performance horse? Okay, so fat is a source of energy. It's two and a quarter times more calories or energy than the other nutrients, such as carbohydrates or protein and so on. So that's one facet. 
essential fatty acids consist of omega-3 and omega-6s. And the horse has a requirement of that of a, maybe 1% in its diet. So hay being a couple of percent and being a little higher in omega-3 than omega-6, that's going to supply the requirement for the horse on a daily basis, okay? So if you have a horse that needs more weight, obviously fat or increasing the fat level in the diet would be important. It's also really important from the idea of omega-3 fatty acids because they have anti-inflammatory benefits that could benefit coat, uh, allergy issues, joints, and so on. So performance horses for that would, would benefit from that, obviously, or any horse would, I should say. Older horses, higher fat diet, fat supplements, or a higher fat senior feed would be beneficial. And then for performance horses, we'll actually increase glycogen storage in that horse and increase stamina uh, or running at speed with that horse. And research has shown if we can do at least, say, 5% dietary fat in the horse's diet, we're going to increase glycogen sparing. That's been shown in research. So shooting for 5 to 10% in the fat of, fat of the diet in the performance horse is, is recommended, uh, typically on the lower end of that, probably because fat is expensive. So an idea with that would be, say, adding a pound of fat to that horse's diet. If you're feeding 15 pounds of hay a day and 10 pounds of feed, that's 10% fat. So that 10% fat feed at 10 pounds would be a pound of fat. That probably most people aren't feeding that much as far as the feed goes. So if you're, say, feeding half of that, then add a fat supplement to get to that. You'll get that glycogen sparing effect. We also know high-fat diets produce calmer horses just like feeding lower NSC feeds, which are non-structural carbohydrates or sugar and starch in the feed. So there's, there's several benefits of adding fat to the diet. So what are the options for making sure a horse gets fat in the diet? Are we looking at oils, powders? Is, are there complete feeds that are concentrates that are designed for the performance horse that will have enough fat in them for these animals? Well, what you'd want to look at is obviously there's a crude fat guarantee, and that crude fat guarantee I would want to be at least five to six percent. Uh, we have feeds in our lines that are up to thirteen percent fat, for example, and also we use flaxseed in almost all of our feeds, and flaxseed is the, one of the highest plant sources of omega threes. We also use soy oil in our feed, and so soy oil, for example, has an eight percent omega three content as opposed to corn oil, which is only a couple percent. So in our more premium feeds also, we're guaranteeing the omega-3 and omega-6 levels in the feeds. So that would be something to look at and then look at the fat percentage and look at the also the NSC level of the feed. And we have guaranteed sugar and starch or dietary starch and sugar levels in our feeds. The combination of those together is NSC. So that would be another concern you'd want to look at. Lower NSC, higher fat feeds are going to produce less excitable, more trainable horses. But for some performance reasons, we may want to, you know, increase that level. And we have feeds with guarantees that are higher levels too. So look at that feed at 5 to 10% fat, I'd say, as a guideline for a performance horse. And then gauge the performance of the horse. If you think the horse has more potential to go more or needs more stamina, then look at increasing the fat, look at increasing the uh, NSC level and just gauging it there and getting an idea of, you know, how far are you as a percent of the diet? How far can you go? Once you get above 10%, you're probably not going to see any increased benefit. 10 to 12% in the diet is like the maximum because it's, you're reducing your muscle glycogen so much from so little starch and sugar in the diet. So that's about as far as you'd want to go. Dr. Tunis, our next question is for you. It's from Leah in Italy. Uh, Leah wants to know if there are some horses that have severe back problems um, or that don't have severe back problems but structurally are incapable of developing a good top line. What recommendations do you have for those horses? Uh, is this an issue, Dr. Tunis? Did I lose Dr. Tunis? No, I'm here. Sorry. I was thinking of how to answer. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, not all horses are blessed with perfect confirmation, right? 
And, you know, as we sort of hinted at earlier, to build muscle, you have to do work. And to build top line, you have to do the kind of work that's actually going to build that top line. And the horse has to biomechanically use itself correctly to build top line. Um, and for some horses, that's going to be more of a challenge than others. If you're not conformationally built in a way that makes it easier for you to use your top line, it's going to be more of a struggle for you to do so and build good top line. So I do think, you know, I think Leia's, you know, right. I mean, some of these horses with poor conformation are going to find it harder to build top line. That said, um, you know, every horse is, has the opportunity to be, to be the best they can be, right? So um, there's a great classical dressage trainer called Charles de Comfy who says, you know, every horse is capable of, you know, being in his own Olympics, right? So every horse can be the best they can be. And it's up to us to help them reach that, their own personal best. The fact that may not be as good as some other horses out there is sort of beside the point. So, um, yeah, those horses are going to be more of a challenge. Now, I will say, beyond just structural confirmation, like skeletal confirmation, there are some structural issues out there uh, or some other issues out there that may have an impact on top line beyond you know protein and beyond doing the work so for example if your horse is vitamin e deficient they may struggle to uh build top line there's actually a condition called uh vitamin e deficiency myopathy uh where horses that are deficient in vitamin e or are living with marginal vitamin e levels over time will actually develop a muscle myopathy and actually lose top line and lose the ability to build top line um, and that can be turned around in these horses um, by getting them enough vitamin e so that that's something to think about there are also other myopathy conditions for example myofibrillar myopathy and polysaccharide storage myopathy type 2 those horses actually have issues with their uh, muscle fibers and it makes it difficult for them to actually develop top line because physically they're not able to work as intensely or to engage as well. Um, so again, if you've tried everything, if you've tried everything to build top line, you're working your horse correctly and it should be building top line, you're feeding a diet that's got plenty of quality protein, you're doing all the things and you're still not getting a top line, I would really encourage you to reach out to your veterinarian because there may be something else going on that needs to be checked out. And so, Dr. Tunis, you uh, you mentioned vitamin E, and that's an antioxidant. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mentioned that a couple of questions ago, so I think now's our chance to talk about antioxidants. So what are antioxidants, and why are they important for horses, especially performance horses? Yeah, so antioxidant, their names sort of gives it away, right? The sort of antioxidation. So when we're burning fuel as an energy Force, um, especially aerobically, and we're using oxygen, where we, you know, are byproducts of those metabolic processes. And um, these byproducts um, can be oxidants, and oxidants damage can damage, uh, you know, tissue. They can damage, um, you know, things that are important for metabolism. And if they build up over time, they start to have, you know, limiting effects on, you know, the horse's ability to. Uh, to metabolize and to you know function the way we want them to so we really want to minimize the buildup of these oxidation products and one of the ways that happens is by having these compounds like vitamin e that basically step in and they sort of mop up the byproducts of oxidation and make it so that they're no longer damaging um, to the tissue and the metabolic processes <clears throat> so vitamin e um, is one of these antioxidants um, and so it's very important uh, in muscle tissue and it's um, it's also important that that you'll notice that when you when you buy commercial feeds especially those that are higher in fat and uh, you know, Dr. Allen is just talking about adding more fat to the diet um, and I might punt this to him here in a moment but when you start adding more fat into the diet you actually need a little bit more vitamin E because you're going to have more oxidation byproducts. Um, and mm -hmm. so we actually tend to increase uh, a little bit the, the amount of vitamin E in the diet as we increase the level of fat that we're feeding horses. 
And so did you want to pass that over to uh, Dr. Adams yeah, as well? Yeah, I didn't know if that sure. was something that he wanted to ask. I will. And in our more premium feeds that are higher fat, we do add additional vitamin E or higher vitamin E levels, for example. And then as far as the other antioxidants, we have selenium and vitamin C. So the horse produces vitamin C. Um, it's questionable whether the horse, especially as an older horse, produces adequate amounts to maintain health. So we do add vitamin C to senior horse feeds and also some performance horse feeds. And then we'll, as far as selenium, selenium has a similar function as vitamin E antioxidant-wise. And so we'll use a more available form of selenium, selenomethionine, or an organic form of selenium that has more absorption too. So we're having those and enhanced vitamin E levels in our feeds as well to provide maximum antioxidant benefit for the horse, especially that performance horse. Dr. Adams, we have a question from our live audience. Uh, Mary would like mm -hmm. to know about, uh, for high performance dressage or event horses, what levels per day would you recommend for glucosamine, MSM, chondroitin, and collagen yeah. supplements? Also, uh, what levels of essential amino acids? So there's quite a bit to digest there. And um, yeah, and I so and I so the efficacy the efficacy of of joint supplements, the oral part is the least known, and the least the least research that shows benefit. So I would I would recommend that. You know, a lot of folks feed an oral joint supplement, either chondroitin, glucosamine, or hyaluronic acid, or a combination of all three. The research would show that maybe the higher-end molecular weights, like HA, having a smaller molecular weight as opposed to chondroitin and glucosamine, may not be absorbed so well. The intramuscular, intraarticular, intradermal um, or IV products. There's research to show that they're much more effective. So I'd certainly, if I had a performance horse and I was suspecting there was an issue, I would go to my vet and look at one of those first, okay? Um, there are There is some research showing some benefit to some joint supplements that are used, and then there's other research studies showing not a benefit. And the, the big issue is we have with joint supplements is that horse research is expensive and so we use fairly small numbers so if there was a significant benefit it would have to be huge in order to be significantly higher right so that's the issue is it because we're using such small horse numbers that we don't see this significant increase or is it just because different and obviously the supplements are going to be different in their efficacy and their concentration and so on so before giving values of that i've I've done that before, um, but I would say choose one from a reputable company. Consult with your veterinarian about using those other types of, of joint supplements that are not oral. And then if you want to support the horse with an oral supplement, use one from a reputable company that has some research that would show it is beneficial. And I do think it's interesting because I am primarily a dressage rider, but I did spend a little yep. bit of time doing some dis distance riding uh, a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised because I've always given my uh, my dressage horses MSM that um, that's actually uh, not allowed in endurance competition. So I think that if you are giving your horse any kind of supplement, uh, you sh it's definitely important to look with your organizing body to see which oh, are allowed yeah. and which might not be. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Um, we have another question from our live audience, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing their name right, but uh, Shema from Egypt is listening live and would like to know how she can increase digestible energy without adding more grain to her horse. Uh, Dr. Tunis? Yeah, that's a great question. I would go back to um, the answer that Dr. Adams gave earlier. The adding the oil is really going to be a great way to do that, or alternatively, using fermentable fiber is another way of getting, um, you know, calories into that ration that are more available but aren't relying on uh, non-structural carbohydrate sources. So um, either utilizing fat sources or adding um, fermentable fiber. 
We have a question for Dr. Adams. Jill in New Jersey wants to know if you have recommendations for feeding racehorses and balancing the need for carbs and energy with gastric ulcer management. So we've we've hit on joint management. Now we're going to talk about that gut health, two really important parts of managing these performance horses. Yeah, so we know that low NSC feeds, low non-structural carbohydrate feeds, ones lower in sugar and starch, will tend to produce less excitability. Uh, there's a lower gastric ulcer incidence with those and so on. The problem is with there is a study with racehorses that showed that when they were fed a low NSC feed, say I'm talking about below 20%, that those horses had lower than normal glycogen stores in their muscles. So obviously they could not work at a at the optimum level. And when they raised that level, the one study I'm thinking of actually used NSC levels in the feed of 45 and 65 percent, which is really high. Um, I don't go that high. As high as I go in, in one of my feeds as far as racehorse-wise would be 40 percent NSC with a guarantee on that. Um, so I would recommend a higher NSC and higher fat feed, at least 10% fat in the feed as well. And then we have products, we have a an ulcer preventive product that can be fed as a supplement. We also have two different ones in our feed lines as well that work in different ways. One is a buffer and one is one to slow the acid secretion. So I would say that, you know, because racehorses are fed typically large amounts of grain, we have a couple of, of different products in our lines which need a minimum of four pounds twice a day or eight pounds a day to get that amount of, of gastric product into the horse. Usually with racehorses, that's not a problem with standard breads or racing thoroughbreds especially. So look for a product that includes that in there as well. So look because you're going for a higher NSC feed because you need that for performance, I would say choose one that's at least a 30%. I would go up to 40. There's ones on the market that don't have guarantees that are probably, again, you know, upwards of 60. I don't think that that's necessary to be that high. Um, so select a little lower than that and look at one with a gastric ulcer product in it. And that should hopefully reduce the incidence of gastric ulcers in, in your horses. Okay. So, Dr. Adams, you mentioned something that I know is Dr. one of Dr. Tunis's favorite topics, and that's serving uh -oh. size. So, Dr. Tunis, do you want to speak about why it's important to read those uh, feedback labels and make sure that your horse is getting at least the minimum serving? Oh, you know, I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I knew you would. You, you're the reason I measure and weigh everything. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it's, it's true. Yeah, it's yes. true. So, so you know, our researchers and people such as Dr. Adams go to great lengths to um, put together feeds that have designated serving sizes, and when you feed them. Uh, you know, using those serving sizes that they're recommending on the bag under the feeding directions, you're going to get the full benefit of that feed. And you're going to, you know, it's going to work with your forage the way it was designed to. You're going to get enough zinc and copper and, you know, all the other nutrients that your horse needs. But if, they, as I think he mentioned, you know, they've got some feeds there that, you know, you need to feed about eight pounds to get some of those benefits from if you've got a horse that just doesn't need eight pounds of a performance feed and you're feeding it a scoop a day, which might be three pounds, your horse probably looks pretty good. He's in good weight. You're doing the right thing, right? You're feeding to condition and you look at your horse and think, well, he looks in great condition. He's not too fat. He's not too thin. He's doing his job well. The problem is, is you're feeding less than the manufacturer has recommended and therefore you're not going to be getting the full benefit of that feed and it's very likely that your horse has some deficiencies still in some key nutrients and maybe this isn't an issue right now maybe your horse is doing great um, but will they still be doing great in three four five years time when you're feeding this diet with suboptimal levels of some of these really important nutrients um, you know maybe not and so in the, we need to be, again, as we said right at the beginning, these performance horses are athletes. We need to be treating them like athletes. We need to make sure all their nutrient requirements are being met. And that means that you need to feed these feeds the way they're designed to be fed. 
So when I say to people, well, you know, your fee has an eight pound a day serving size, they go, oh my golly, you know, he'd be obese <laughs> or I'd get bucked off or whatever if I said that mm -hmm. much. Then my answer is, well, you haven't selected the right feed from their range of feed for your particular horse. Like we need to go back to the manufacturer's line of feeds. They often have five, six, seven, you know, more feeds in their lineup and find one that you can feed at that, you know, two, three pound a day serving size that you are, because that feed is going to then, you know, provide everything that you need. It's more likely to provide everything that you, that you need without your horse getting fat and bucking you off. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's important that you read the feeding directions, that they are there for a reason and not, you know, shouldn't, you know, not to be ignored. And if you really like feeding three pounds of your performance fee, the other way around that is, okay, keep feeding three pounds of your performance fee, but you need to add a little bit of a balancer in there to kind of make up those exactly. missing pieces and, and combine two feeds to kind of get where you're supposed to be getting. And our next question from our live audience, uh, Dr. Adams, I'm going to give it to you, and I think it, it dovetails nicely with this topic. It's from Jan, and she's uh, from British Columbia in Canada, and she wants to know, should she be looking at an amino acid supplement for aged performance horses with PPID? The, her horses are currently maintained on an alfalfa grass hay, a small amount of fat-based zero-grain concentrate, and a very good quality vitamin mineral supplement. So, Dr. Adams, okay. you mentioned the NSCs. We have a question about a PPID horse, um, and maybe right. the same would apply to a metabolic horse. Um, but what, what recommendations do you have for a horse like this? Okay, so PPID is the fancy acronym for pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction, and everybody probably knows that as Cushing's, right? So that's an excess of cortisol that is in the body and it causes a lot of stress in the horse. And one of the things it does, it increases gluconeogenesis, meaning it takes some of the amino acids and converts them to glucose. So the horse can use that to run away from what's causing the stress which would be the idea of a physical stress, but there are other stressors too. So the idea would be that it's kind of a protein-wasting disease, and we'll typically see a loss in top light in the horse when that occurs. So we'd like to increase the level of protein in the diet. At the same time, we have the issue with the horse um, having needing a lower level of, of sugar and starch because we want to reduce the risk of colic, but especially laminitis. The main issue we have with equine metabolic syndrome horses as well as Cushing's horses, the main symptom they can have is laminitis. So we want to reduce that as much as we can. So with Cargill, we actually do free hay analysis for veterinarians and horse owners, and we actually test the sugar and starch level of the hay, and we have recommendations for that. So we, our recommendations would be below 10 to 12%, depending on the metabolic issue that the horse has. And then the other recommendation would be we want to lower the amount of sugar and starch to a level of no more than a gram of NSC per kilogram of body weight per meal. That's a really complicated, you know, thing to do. And I can see everybody, you know, out in the barn, you know, with their calculators going, oh, okay, we're going to get this right here. So if you'll just a good thumb rule is select a feed that has a guaranteed sugar and starch combination of 20% or less and feed no more than half a percent of the body weight per meal, and you will be at that level or less. Okay, so low NSC feed, you may want to, like like Dr. Tunis had said, a lot of times our horses are easy keepers. The minimum feeding recommendation on almost any feed that's manufactured is a half a percent of body weight per day minimum. So five pounds for a thousand pound horse minimum. I know a lot of horses that get less than that. So use your feed and use a diet balancer at one to two pounds. Those products are 25 to 30% protein, have a better, much better amino acid profile, much higher in amino acids. So that's what I typically feed a Cushing's horse, a low NSC feed with a low NSC diet balancer combination a lot of times. And again, if, if it was a serious issue, I would have my hay tested or soak my hay uh, to make sure, again, to reduce any risk of laminitis. 
We have a question from our live audience, Dr. Tunis. I'm going to give this one to you. It's from Glenn, who's in Trinidad, and he would like to know if you get more benefit from flaxseed if you boil it. So, Dr. Tunis, this flaxseed thing is very confusing. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of um, I don't I don't know if it's misunderstanding or I don't think any of us really know what we should be doing when it comes to flaxseed. We just know that our horses should probably be getting it. So what is the best preparation for flaxseed for horses and is it necessary to boil it? Uh, great question. So I grew up um, with my mother boiling flaxseed on the stove. Um, it smells bad. And, um, and if you if you don't pay attention to it and it boils over, it's really hard to get off your stove. So the good news is, is you don't boil it. <laughs> In fact, it's better if you don't because the omega fatty acids that you actually want, that Dr. Adams talked about earlier about these essential fatty acids, they're not very heat stable. So if you boiled it, um, you know, potentially you've disrupted them and you're not going to get the, the benefit out of them that you want. Um, what's interesting about uh, when you do boil flax is it turns into the consistency of snot. It's really, uh, it's really <laughs> yeah. interesting yeah. stuff. And that's because it has a compound in it called mucilage uh, and it kind of creates this almost like mucus-like substance, um, which it'll do too, just, you know, if you just put it in water or just feed it. Flax is a very... Um, has a very hard shell. So you can feed it whole. Um, you know, a good number of people do feed it whole, but you may find that it comes out the other end whole. Um, there, I don't know if you've ever had flax in your breakfast cereal. Um, I, there's a breakfast cereal I like that has whole flax in it. And um, if it gets stuck in your teeth, you know, you find it later and they're slippery little things and they're not easy to chew. So um, my preference is to grind it and feed it ground. Now the problem there is, is that now that we've gone and disrupted the shell of the flaxseed, we've exposed all the good stuff on the inside to oxygen. And again, those fatty acids are potentially gonna degrade because they're in contact with oxygen and get oxidized. So there are ways in which it can be ground um, and then what are called stabilized. It stabilizes the fat so that it's not as prone to oxidation. So my preference is to look for a commercially ground stabilized flaxseed. If you're going to grind it yourself, um, you should probably grind it and then feed it, uh, you know, pretty quickly after you've ground it. Um, I know some people will put it in, you know, grind some and then put it in the fridge so that it's, you know, cooler and isn't, isn't as exposed to heat. Um, but ideally you grind it and feed it almost right away. Um, so that's to me a lot of hassle and not always very realistic. So finding a you know, pre-ground stabilized version is better or um, find a flax oil. Um, but that, again, needs to be managed carefully so that it, it stays stable. And so if you're in a hot climate, like, you know, I live in Arizona, it's 110 plus degrees a lot of days out of the summer. Um, you know, having flax oil sitting in your feed room is, is not necessarily going to stay super stable. So it may need to be kept in a cooler location than that. So Dr. Adams, you mentioned that um, some of your line of feeds have flax as well. So is it a stabilized mm -hmm. flax that's included in, in manufactured feeds? A stabilized flax is one that you, that is, has a special process so it's not disrupted as much what we do is we'll use flaxseed and then we'll disrupt it when we pelletize it we put it in the pellet so it's disrupted at the pellet and then the feed typically then is going to be consumed within you know most of our feeds even though we have shelf lives of two and three months most of those feeds are consumed in a few weeks most people buy to get their feed once you know once a week or every couple of weeks and then they're they eat it up feed it up then that, that that time so we don't feel that we have um you know a lot of time that we that we see some loss there uh, from that and the ones that were that were guaranteeing the omega-3s on were obviously you know over uh, fortifying those so that at the end of that shelf life time we're still going to have that guarantee um, our next question is for Dr. Tunis, and it's from Victoria in Virginia. And Victoria wants to know if adding beet pulp 
uh, would be safer and an inexpensive way for a performance horse to get more energy. And Dr. Tunis, I would add to that question, uh, would alfalfa also be an option? Yeah, gosh, okay, so those are two, um, yeah, so both of those, both alfalfa and beet pulp um, have more calories per pound than most grass hays do. Um, beet pulp has slightly more calories per pound than the alfalfa is going to. So it's sort of an increasing, you know, level of calories per pound there from grass hay to alfalfa to beet pulp. Um, beet pulp is, um, we sort of refer to beet pulp as like a super fiber um, because it's, um, it's a readily, you know, it's, it has a lot of readily fermentable fiber. Um, it is, I think Victoria asked, is it safer? Um, we consider it to be kind of a safe source of additional calories because it requires microbial fermentation. So it's not going to result in, it's not, it's not high in starch. Actually, this is a really important thing about beet pulp, which I run into a lot is the misconception that because it's sugar beet pulp, people think it's really high in sugar. But I think it's important to understand that beet pulp is actually a byproduct of the sugar milling industry. And there's not very much sugar left in it at all. In fact, the NFC content of beet pulp is typically below 10% because they've taken out all the sugar. They don't want us to have the sugar in our horse feed. It's grown for sugar. That gets taken out. And what we're feeding as beet pulp is what's left over after the sugar's been removed. So the name is a little bit of a confusing name. It is a sugar beet, but by the time we get to it, there's not much sugar left. Um, and so the calories are really coming from fermentable fiber that requires microbial fermentation in the hindgut. Um, and it is, you know, it is going to give you more calories per pound than, you know, our hay typically do. So um, it can be a good way of getting more calories into a performance horse. But remember, it's not fortified. <clears throat> so having hay and then say adding beet pulp into a ration, yes, you'll get more calories. You have your calorie density gone up but you're still not going to have all of those micronutrients that were missing in your hay, you know, all your zinc and copper and vitamin E and the like, because they're not in your beet pulp at very high levels either. Um, so you still have some other things you're going to have to add to that ration to have a really to meet all the horse's needs. And Dr. Adams, um, how do you manufacturers use beet pulp in their products? Is that something that's going to be in a horse's concentrate feed? Oh yes, we we use beet pulp in a couple of ways. Some feeds that are totally pelleted or multiform, they have pelleted and extruded ingredients in them. We'll actually put beet pulp into the pellet itself, and then there are other feeds that will have beet pulp shreds in, and so those feeds would typically be called a a textured feed, even though they would have pellets and beet pulp only. And then in there's some of the racing feeds, you know, also. We may have grain, we may have some oats and corn in the feed, but we'd also have beet pulp shreds as well in those. And Dr. Tunis, we had another question about beet pulp, because beet pulp is another always hot topic. Um, it's okay. from Tammy in California, and she wants to know if for her endurance horses, would it be better to feed strips or pellets? Does it matter? Um, I mean, not really um typically you know we we recommend soaking beet pulp um and um although it doesn't i think it's, it doesn't have to be soaked but um i always recommend soaking it when you when you feed straight beet pulp um and that's especially true of the pellets um and they take longer to soak than the shreds um but it's the same you know starting material it's just that the shreds have been turned into pellets um so the shreds are gonna are gonna soak quicker um, than the pellets will. Um, we have another question for you, Dr. Tunis, and it's from Trinette in Texas. And so we we have had ration balancer mentioned in in the last 45 minutes, but Trinette's question specifically about ration balancers. Would you recommend using a ration balancer for a performance horse? Yeah, it depends on, you know, on the individual performance horse and, you know, so the way the way I look at rations is, you know, can I maintain this horse on forage alone? And if the answer is yes, then I'm looking for the pieces that are missing from my forage. So I'm looking for that quality protein, 
as trace minerals, the vitamin E and the like, and that's what ration balances provide. Um, and um, and so, yeah, I mean, if that's, I, I, I have a lot of dressage horses that do very well on good quality, um, good quality forage and a ration balancer. Um, and, um, or I have people that want to use, you know, oats and rice bran, and then we need, we add the ration balancer to get them all those to fortify the diet. Or I have those people that are not who, as I mentioned earlier, are not following the the feeding guidelines on a performance feed, and so we'll add a ration balancer in there. So yeah, I have a lot of performance horses that are fed ration balances. So it's it's not just for the retired horse. Absolutely not. No. Or yeah, no. I feed a lot. I have a lot of performance horses that do very well on ration balances. Dr. Adams, we have a question from Kathy in Virginia, and she wants to know if coastal mm -hmm. hay is safe and nutritious for horses. So if you could first explain mm -hmm. to us what coastal coastal hay is, and then uh, then sure. answer Kathy's question about okay. whether it's safe. Yeah, so coastal hay is coastal Bermuda grass hay, and it's a warm season grass that's grown on the East Coast, Virginia, on down, and then across Mississippi, Alabama, and so on. So there's coastal Bermuda grass hay, and then there are some improved varieties. So there's Tipton 44 and 85, and they were developed at the Tipton Georgia Research Station. Okay, so they're improved varieties. They're going to be higher in protein, higher in calories um, as well, and not um, more palatable to. So the issue is any poor quality hay or, or a hay that's been harvested say at the seed head stage, right? Everybody knows Timothy hay because you see the seed head that's as big as your little finger. And that is a that is a lower quality Timothy hay. So coastal is the same way. And it, since it's a warm season grass, it grows faster and gets worse quicker, right? So ideally it should be harvested less than a month every every cutting and it rarely is. So the issue is it's gotten a bad rep in that regard. It does have a greater risk of impaction colic because it tends to be lower quality. It doesn't break down in the cecum. And it, actually, ileocecal impactions are greater in coastal hay. The improved varieties are better at that, and they're higher quality if you harvest them at an earlier stage. So that's the concern. So any hay that you would get, get it tested. Make sure the ADF level, acid detergent fiber levels, no more than about 40. You could probably tolerate up to about 45 maybe on coastal. And then the NDF, neutral detergent fiber level B, if it could be 60 or less, that would be great. 40 and 60 would be awesome and 10% protein. If you get coastal hay that's running 10, 40, 60 on my little rule there, uh, it would be good hay. It would be high enough calories that the horse could consume at least one and a half to 2% of its body weight a day. And it would be less fibrous so that the risk of these impactions that you get from lower quality haze would be much less likely. Our next question is from Patricia in our live audience. Dr. Tunis, this one's for you. She's curious if there is a nutrition, nutritional difference between alfalfa flakes, cubes, or pellets besides the fiber length. No, not really, because you're just taking that alfalfa hay and, um, um, you know, processing it into, as she's mentioned, different fiber lengths and then um, sort of sticking it back together again, for want of a better expression. Um, so, no, I don't, I mean, it's, it, you're not really altering the, um, the nutrition content. However, you are potentially altering the digestibility which may mean that the horse can get more or less out of that alfalfa. So, um, you know, as particle sizes get smaller, the relative surface area gets greater. And that means there's more surface area for digestive enzymes in the small intestine and uh, bacteria in the hindgut to attach to. Um, and so you may see better digestibility um, out of a pellet than you would out of that same hay in um, a long stem fiber form. Um, so that's sometimes why we find like you might feed a horse, say 20 pounds of a long stem hay and maintain its weight. And that same horse would maybe get by on slightly less pounds of that same hay if it had been pelleted instead, if that makes sense. 
Um, our next question is for Dr. Adams. It's from Ellen in Utah, and she wants to know if it's possible to cover the electrolyte needs of an endurance horse with just nutrition and feeding alone, or do you need to supplement? Okay, so likely, so we know that horses excrete mineral, right, when they sweat. And it's obvious a horse, an endurance horse doing a 100-miler that under humid conditions could be sweating four gallons an hour during that activity. And that activity might take eight to 10 hours that day, depending on that. So obviously that horse is going to be excreting some mineral and is going to be needing to take some in. So the idea would be that the weight of the horse, about 25% of the weight of the horse is its gut, meaning the fiber and water. So if we have the horse on a good hay diet, which I, I would want endurance horses to be at, at least one and a half percent of their body weight a day in hay, that's going to be able to store a lot of that electrolyte. And then giving electrolytes a few days before the ride would be beneficial. And then a lot of endurance riders will give electrolytes be, before the ride, uh, some even in NG tubes, and then they will provide those during the break times as well, which I feel is very important because the horse's blood glucose levels can go down, a higher fat diet will help offset that, but also providing electrolytes. So the horse could lose several ounces of potassium, sodium, and chloride during that ride, a little bit of magnesium and, cal and, and calcium as well. So I'd certainly recommend supplementing that horse during that. And then after, there's been a cases where some horses, endurance horses have died suddenly after an endurance ride, even the next day. And so we want to continue those electrolytes. So electrolytes do two things. They make the horse drink more, and they provide those electrolytes that are lost in sweat. So I would say definitely do that. Can you meet it just nutritionally? You can provide a great reserve in that horse uh, as well. Water and, and fiber in the gut is great, but I would recommend still to supplement with electrolytes as you know as you go through the ride as well because the environmental conditions vary so much it could be really hot and humid where this horse really sweats a lot and it could be more of a concern and dr adams when we're talking about electrolytes are we talking about salt also and supplementing with like table salt for our horses is that something they should be yeah. getting every day the major electrolytes, and we'll put in the feed, so we'll put in the feed, we'll put 1% salt in the feed, right? So that's about 20 pounds per ton. That's going to meet the maintenance need of the horse, but when the horse is work in work, he's going to sweat more. So we always recommend a three-choice salt product available, either in a loose form or a block. And there's research to show in hot weather, horses will voluntarily consume, you know, an ounce or two of salt a day. Most of them will. Um, just stare at the block and move on, of course. Um, so by providing, and I don't like free choice. So if I have, if I, if it's going to be freezing weather and you're not, and you're not, don't have insulated waters or heated waters, and it's going to be freezing time, add some salt to your feed twice a day when you feed, get them more salt and make them drink. So the major electrolytes are salt, which is sodium and chloride and potassium. So those are the three major ones. Potassium is typically high in forage, so that's not as much a concern. So you're right, salt or sodium chloride is the major one. So again, keep that available to the horse so that he's never lacking. He can always go to it to keep him drinking. And we have electrolytes that have dextrose in them, which is a fancy name for glucose. And what that does at a, at a low level in that electrolyte, it actually enhances the absorption of those major minerals into the gut into the bloodstream from the gut. So a little sugar in there could be beneficial as well. And it's beneficial for endurance horses because you may want actually a higher sugar electrolyte when that horse is in heavy work and it tastes better too. Uh, Dr. Tunis, our next question is for you. Uh, Jeanette in New Jersey wants to know how many hours before competition and after should horses be fed? Yeah, that's a great one. There's, um, and it, it can be tricky when you're at a competition, right? Because sometimes you end up, uh, you can't feed at the same time you normally would at home because that's when you're riding. So, you know, how do you move things around? It can be take a little bit of planning. Um, I think it depends on uh, what you're wanting to feed. Um, there's some research showing that 
uh, when we feed grain um, two hours or less before exercise, uh, either with or without hay, that this can reduce what's called free fatty acid availability. And I think we've touched on, you know, free fatty acid uh, throughout this evening, but this is, you know, fat that's available in the bloodstream to then be used as an energy source. So when you feed a higher starch grain two hours or less before exercise, um, you reduce the free fatty acid availability and you increase glucose uptake into working muscle. And you might think on face value that that sounds good, right? Because you're going to get more glucose going into that working muscle and you think, well, that's good because I want, you know, I want to use that glucose for muscle contraction and exercise. But we have to remember that horses have a somewhat limited amount of glucose available to them and they have a lot more fatty acid available to them. And when horses are working at so low to moderate intensities, they're working what we call aerobically. And when you're working aerobically, you can burn fat and carbohydrate. And we'd really like them to burn fat because they've got enough fat to go on and on and on and on. And they only have a somewhat limited amount of glucose, glycogen, sort of carbohydrate available. And we'd like them to keep that in reserve because when you work a horse aerobically you can only burn carbohydrate you can only burn glucose or glycogen so our preference would be not to use glucose and glycogen when we're working aerobically and to use fat and if you've gone and fed your horse less than two hours before they work a higher starch uh, meal you're going to make it so they can't use fatty acids as well and they're going to be burning that carbohydrate and they're working at their moderate sort of light levels and then when they go anaerobic they may run out of energy because they can't use fat when they're working anaerobically so my general recommendation is is um if you're going to if you're feeding if part of your horse's diet is made up of a higher starch feed that you need to feed that more than two hours before that horse is exercising um, they can have some hay. They can have um, the research has shown that uh, hay doesn't impact that as much. Hay will, as we've hinted at earlier, hay causes horses to um, consume more water. And so they end up with sort of a reservoir of, of water in their gut. And um, that will increase their body weight. And it, it has been shown to result in having higher uh, heart rate levels while they're working, which perhaps is not ideal. but Working a horse on a completely empty stomach is not a good idea either because then your ulcer risk goes up. So a little bit of forage before they work is probably a good idea. You know, don't do higher starch feeds within two hours of working. And then on the back end, after they've exercised, make sure they have access to forage. Again, that's going to help them want to drink, replenish, you know, sweat, losses of fluids and the like. And then, if again, if their diet is made up of some amount of a higher starch feed, you can feed that within sort of an hour of work, and that may help actually replenish any glycogen that they've lost um, while they were working. Well, we are over our hour, but I have one more question for Dr. Adams that I think is a nice one to end on uh, before we, we wrap up for the evening. So Dr. Adams, Stella is in Texas, and she wants to know when a performance horse is retired from competition, how do you scale them back from a high performance feed to fit their new role as maybe a trail or a recreational horse? Okay. So obviously the idea would be, you know, don't do it like Secretariat. Secretariat was fed back in the day when large amounts of concentrates were fed, and and the story goes that he was still fed that high concentrate diet, that sweet feed, uh, as he after he'd retired. And that's what we need to do. That's we need to tailor the diet to the horse's activity. So obviously we reduce our grain. Nowadays we can we can actually have feeds that are guaranteed levels of sugar and starch. So I certainly look at a at a lower NSC feed for those retired horses, which senior horse feeds should have guaranteed low levels of sugar and starch, say below 20%, for example, as well. So look at that. Um, some horses that have great pasture, um, a diet balancer at a pound or two a day would be sufficient for them. Uh, thoroughbreds. Typically, are you know, uh, they're going to have a higher metabolic rate and they're going to be harder keepers. So they they may need to be fed a feed that at a greater quantity. But again, I would you know caution and go let's go low in SD feed, reduce the risk of colic, 
and laminitis in those horses. And then we look at two things. Let's look at body condition score. That's the amount of fat cover on the horse, and that's dependent on the calories that the horse receives. So let's look at a healthy body condition score of a five to six on that nine-point scale. And the other issue, especially with performance horses too, we do a lot of this with our, with our feed reps. We do a top-line evaluation score. We rate that horse's top line from an A to a D, and we will recommend amino acid supplements and exercise to achieve that, which is not always going to be every horse going to be an A. But to keep the horse in, in optimum health, we look at those two things, again, with a proper feed, lower feeding rate. Obviously, the horse has less calorie needs. And looking at the diet balancers, especially our diet balancer feed combination for those horses and so many of the warm bloods, draft crosses, and so on that have that thriftier metabolism that requires so much less feed for the same amount of work than some other light horse breeds. Well, thank you. And unfortunately, that is all the time we have. We've gone over a little bit. So thank you to everyone for, for sticking with us. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Tunis and Dr. Adams for joining us and taking a little bit extra time to, to squeeze in a couple more questions. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Me too. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was, it was a great conversation. I also want to thank our sponsor, Pro Elite, and to everyone who's listening, thank you for joining us, and please join us next time. Until then, from all of us at The Horse, have a great night.